0: The origin of the book of Mark begins with Peter's ministry in Rome. Peter would preach, or he'd teach, and he had an attending worker in Christ, his name was John Mark, and John Mark would walk along beside him and share in the ministry with him, but Peter, obviously, because he is a pillar of the church, he's one of the twelve, he's the leader of the twelve, he was the leader of this movement, uh, his particular movement in Rome. And so that's how it would go. Peter would preach and teach, and Mark would be there. He'd accompany him. And then Peter would go to some other community or, or town in the surrounding region, and he'd preach and teach, and John Mark would be there. And then he'd go to another town, and he'd preach and teach, and John Mark would be there. And you can imagine that over time, Peter has this set of stories, set of accounts that he preferred to use. Or if he had a set of accounts that he preferred to use in a certain way, that's how that's really how we all are. We have these things we say in a certain way. And in all the while, John Mark is listening to these. Listening to the way that Peter's sharing to these people. And the book of Mark is John's record, this is what is generally believed, it's John's record of the the ministry messages of Peter. So this is, in a sense, the life and story of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's kind of come out of the life of Peter and has been recorded by the hand of Mark. It holds biblical status, not because of Mark, it holds biblical status because of Peter since the very beginning the gospel of mark has been affirmed and received by the church because of peter's affirmation of it as the history goes and it's a certain odd kind of way i like to fancy that when i'm reading mark i'm actually hearing peter i'm attracted to that notion this notion that I'm, I can hear Peter come off the pages, that Mark is kind of writing the stories like Peter, Peter told them. And Mark has this, this unusual nature about it that differentiates itself from the other Gospels. It's to the point, which is very Peter. right? And it's in your face, which is very Peter. And it's, it's, it doesn't balk at, at telling you the miraculous power of Christ, which feels so petrine. And it's just my fancy, but it's, I feel like it sounds like Peter. Like when I try to imagine in my mind, what does Peter sound like? I like to read Mark. Now, I've called this study of Mark Tacklebox. Um, because in the very first, the very first chapter, we're going to read very shortly, um, Jesus Christ himself turns to Peter and says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. But I also like to think that if this is a compilation, if the histories are and the scriptures are of one accord and they're true, if this is a compilation of all the different ways that Peter would speak and share about Jesus Christ, what we kind of have is his book of sermon illustrations. We have the different... The, I like to think, if he was a fisherman, you're getting to look at all his different lures. The ways he would catch people. That's kind of these... These stories is, this is, the book of Mark is in a way the tackle box of Peter. It's, it's the ways that he would fish for men, the ways he would cast out and, and try to hook people in to the truth of Christ, try to lure them in, how he'd draw them into the boat of the faith. And so we're going to kind of walk through this idea of, of the tackle box of the faith over the course of our study in Mark, which is just the first two chapters. Um, but but I, I think this this is kind of Mark's bait and tackle or, uh, of of Peter. This is Mark's describing the way that, that Peter used this, and so that's that's the idea behind here. As we turn as we turn to the book and as we turn to the first chapter, I, I just I, we have that idea in mind. So if you would, if you're looking at Mark one, we're going to spend the morning on Mark one one. So let me read it here. says this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this morning we're going to ask a lot of small questions about this sentence. But the small questions are really trying to build up to this big question, which is why does Mark begin his account with this, this sentence, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why does he start that way? None of the other Gospels start that way. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Luke starts with a personal reference to Theophilus. He says, many have endeavored to try to explain the life and times of Christ, dear Theophilus. Here's my best shake at it. John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They each begin in such very, varying different ways. Why does Mark begin this way, and what does it mean? That's kind of what we're going to be Speaking of this morning, and we're going to do this with some small questions about the verse. And so let's begin. Question number one What is meant by the word gospel? What's meant by the word gospel? The word gospel is derived from the Old English. There's two Old English words, like good spell and they are pushed together over time, they became fused, it meant good news, good news. The gospel is, is the new standard English derivation from an old English phrase, which meant good news, which is, by the way, what the Greek here is. The Greek is not gospel, the, the Hebrew is not gospel, the Greek is good news. It's euangelion is the Greek, which means good news what we've done is we've kind of fused the idea of good news into gospel. But that's not what it means. It just means good news. And it has a certain colloquial meaning at the, in the time, which sometimes you read in Scripture almost as great tidings. That this kind of euangelion idea, they would use it more, to, more than just to express good news. Like you wouldn't necessarily come home and say, Hey, good news, there's a sale at pennies. It's not that kind of good news. It's like a great tiding good news. Uh, like when, when Caesar Augustus is born, the Romans write of the gospel of the birth of Caesar. So it's kind of epic news. Epic good news. Great tidings. That's, that's the colloquial idea that's going on now. But when we say gospel... We mean this contained, at least I think we do. You can correct me later if I'm wrong, but I think when we say gospel, what comes to our mind is this contained idea of certain basic precepts, principal truths about Jesus Christ. If I said to you, what's the gospel? You would say, well, the gospel is that God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to earth to live a perfect life. That He was suffered, he died, and was resurrected on our behalf so that our sin might be vanquished and paid for and so that we might rise with Christ also through faith. That's about the gospel. I think it's about right. And you would say, that's the gospel. If I was doing a funeral and I, it went in your family and I said, what would you like me to do? And you said, preacher, preach the gospel. I would know what you meant. I would know exactly what you meant. You, what you're saying is, don't just preach some good news Preach this codified set of capital G gospel. That's what we say. That is not, I don't think, what Mark is saying. We have this proper noun that exists now, gospel. It was was two words. It was good news. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not saying... This is the codified, contained, precept-oriented discussion of the theological implications which we call gospel. Mark is saying this is the beginning of the good news. It's the good news. This is important because we need to recognize, first of all, that Mark is is the first gospel written and is one of the first, if not the first, book of the New Testament written. It's being written in a time when the church has not yet even codified any of its terms. It may not even be church. You know, here's a good example of another one we've codified, church. The ecclesia, which is the Greek for the gathering, it was initially gathering. Let's gather. There was a gathering of believers. It was a lowercase idea. They gathered. They gathered in big groups. They gathered in small groups. They gathered in homes. They gathered in the temple courts. They gathered here. They gathered there. They gathered. They gathered. They gathered. Eventually, it started to be a gathering with a capital G, which becomes church. But it didn't start that way. And when Mark is starting here, he's starting with a lowercase idea. This is the beginning of good news For the next eight weeks, I want you to think of the story of Christ and God in these terms of good news, of just good news, these great tidings. This is a broader idea. It's a broader idea I'm inviting you to think about. That when Mark says, I'm going to tell you good news, I don't want you to focus on the gospel. It's here. It's amidst the good news. All the good news hangs on it. It's the trunk of the branches of the good news. So I'm not here to deny it. It's going to be central. We cannot talk about the good news without talking about the gospel. But I'm here to say there's a broad idea that's being spoken of here, and it's called good news. If this was tackle, if we're going to think of it as our bait and tackle, you might think of the gospel as the essential things you need to catch a fish. Right? I can have something shiny, but if it has no hook, I'm not catching anything. That the, the, the things we classically call the gospel are the essential things you need on a lure if you're going to catch anything. You need a hook, you need an eyelet to attach to a string, you need a rod, you need a reel, you need all that. Okay, that's the gospel. Nonetheless, any good fisherman, you open up their tackle box and what do you see? This massive array of good news. They all have hooks. They all have eyelets. They all have attached to strings. They all depend on rods and reels. But he brought three rods, and he brought four reels, and he brought different weights of string. I used to fly fish, actually, with my friend Brandon here in Alaska, and we had different kinds of weight strings and different rods and different kinds of flies. Why would you do that? Because the essentials of the gospel are beautiful news when they're added to it the exact right kind of thing for the right thing you're trying to catch. This is the good news broad. It's broad. And in your language, in this world, we need to talk about the good news if we're going to catch someone with the gospel. It's the good news. That's the first word. So this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the second question. What does Mark mean by the word Christ. Jesus Christ. We get used to saying these things, don't we? Just say them. Christ is not his last name. But we say it that way. We refer to it as though it is his last name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's his name. Jesus, son of Joseph, tribe of Judah, of Nazareth. That's his name. Christ is his title. Christ means the anointed one. The Hebrew transliteration of this is Messiah. So Mark is saying this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God. That's what he's saying. And this is big. I, 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 I'm going to preach a whole sermon on that. But, but what, I want, what I want to say from the very beginning... Because, boy, has Mark, or have, haven't all the Gospels, have they come under criticism in our age? I want to say this. You can tell me, if you don't believe in Christ or if you're not attracted by the tackle of this Gospel, you can deny it. That's your right to deny this. What you cannot deny is what Mark thinks about Jesus. You can deny the truth of God, but I can say this. We cannot deny that Mark thinks... That Jesus is the anointed one who is the Son of God. And when I say anointed, the anointed one was the term the Hebrews would use for their expectation that God would, in some fullness of time, make good on all his promises. That there was a distinct feeling among the Hebrew people that God had not yet fully answered the promises to Abraham and the promises of the covenant and all these things that they thought were supposed to come due to them. And the expectation from the prophets and from the other scriptures was that an anointed one, the anointed one, would come. And he would arrive and he would usher in this time of God, the day of the Lord. So when Mark says he's the anointed one, he's telling the reader, Jesus is the Messiah upon which the Hebrew people have prayed and hoped, and he is also the Son of God. And I'd say, as as big as that idea is, for the purposes of this series, we're not going to read Mark any other way. Jesus Christ is the Anointed One, the Son of God. So this verse 1 is really the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Anointed One, who is the Son of God. Three. What does "about" mean? The Greek there allows for multiple multiple ways of translating or understanding this. So there's multiple meanings. The first way you can understand "about" is that this story is about Jesus, kind of like it's written here. This is the story about Jesus. Which, if I was going to tell you, this is the story of Huck Finn about Huck Finn, or or whoever it would be, you would imagine in your mind that I'm going to tell you the events that transpired around the life of Huckleberry Finn. And so in one way, this, this, is, this may be the meaning. This certainly, many people translate it this way, that this account is about the life, it's, an, it's a biographical account of the life of Jesus. What he did, the events around him, the events that transpired because of him, the significance of his life. And in, on this account, there's, this is certainly true, if not in whole, it certainly is true in part. There is good news, there's actual good news based on the life of Jesus. His life is good news. The events around his life actually convey good news to us. If you came to me, if we were talking about the faith and you said to me, you know, I've listened to you and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to the faith, but the faith can't be for me because my life is a wreck. That if you looked at my life, you would see so much brokenness that there's just no way that that story is for me. If I heard that, I would say, Well, I have good news. Because of the life Jesus lived, I can testify on his behalf that he made it his calling and profession to fix broken things. That Jesus Christ, he heals the sick, he prays with the hurting, he blesses people who need blessing, he he sets things right, that Jesus Christ's ministry, his active ministry, not what he said, what he did, testifies to the fact that he embraces broken things that need fixing. And from that I would say, good news, that the the good news of Christ is for the wrecked and the broken. If you told me that God wouldn't have you because of the things you've done, your sin, the massive sin in your life, the way you've rebelled against him, I would look at you and I would say, well, good news. Because the testimony of Jesus' life is one of forgiveness. Not what he said, what he did. That I would say that Jesus Christ actually historically lived a perfect life, that he lived a tested and verified life of perfection, and that he brought this life all the way to the cross and endured the crucifixion of the cross to to endure our judgment for our sin on his shoulders. That's what he did. He could have done that silent like a lamb to the slaughter, but it happened. It's good news. The event, proclaim, the event itself proclaims good news to the sinner. It says what Jesus has done has actually conveyed good news to your dark soul. That if you repent and turn to him, there is forgiveness and salvation because Jesus Christ, that the perfect life, was crucified and was raised into glory. Good news. If you told me you were fearful of death, I would say good news. Because Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead as the first fruits of a new covenant that we share. We are co-heirs with Christ, it writes. So anything that's happened to Christ, we can fully expect to happen to us. We are sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so I can say, based on the events of Scripture, good news. Because we will not sleep long. We will rise with God. So there's this way when we speak of good news about Jesus, the anointed Son of God, that part of what Mark is saying is that the actual events are good news. The surrounding issues around Jesus' life, what he did, what was done to him, and what transpired from that, that itself is good news. That's one way to read the word about. Here's another way to read the word about. Another way to translate this is, this is the good news concerning Jesus as proclaimed by Jesus or that he said so is it the good news about his life or is this about the good news that he actually shared do you see the difference one is dealing with actions his events of his life and one's dealing with his words look at verse 14 and 15 with me 114 so this is the ministry this is immediately when Jesus begins his ministry So he hasn't done anything yet um, in a profound sense. After John was put in prison, it says Jesus went into Galilee doing what? Proclaiming the good news of God. And he says the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Here the good news is something spoken. It's truth proclaimed. It isn't an action done. It's something that preaches into people's lives. There's two kinds of good news. There's the activity of Christ on our behalf and there's the words of Christ which carry true to today. He did more than make fishes and heal cripples. He spoke. He did more than die and rise. Jesus opened his mouth and spoke. And his words are good news. I see this, the way I understand the good news is kind of like there's a passive side of it and there's an active side of it. The passive side of the good news is the things that Christ has already done on our behalf. You can't change it, you can't affect it, you can't tamper with it. It is. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, suffered, died, and was resurrected for your sins. That is beyond us and we passively recognize it in our faith. But we receive that passively. That's the passive side of the good news. Is Let me tell you what God, do you know what the Lord has done for you? As the song goes. That's the passive side of the good news. Here's the active side of the good news. Jesus Christ's words are living and active and they continue to work in us today. That's the active side. So there's a passive side where we recognize what was done for us but there's an active side where we recognize what he is saying to us now. The word is active in our lives. The words of Christ challenge us and they break us and they push us. The goal is that Christ's words would kill you and raise you. If you listen to them, you will listen to them and eventually say, this will kill me if I do this. And Jesus will go, that is good news. Some people wonder... Particularly around Easter, there's the common conversation of what character would you be at the crucifixion? Have this conversation before. Would you be Peter, who denies Christ, or would you be John at the cross, or would you be Thomas? Would you be Pontius Pilate or Judas, or would you be one of the thieves? We've thought at time. I think many of us have thought at time. What role would I play? Who am I? How would I react to those occasions if I were there? Would I say crucify him? Would I say give us Barabbas? Would I weep? And we kind of leave those questions unanswered. I have a way that you can answer this question. What do you do to his words? Do you bow to them? Do you deny them? Do you run from them? Do you hide from them? Do you weep and embrace them? Now, there's some words that are just clearly good news to us. Come, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. There's something that goes, ah, good news. The Lord says, blessed are the meek, good news. Blessed are those who mourn, good news. What, what happens, though, when the Lord says this, when he says, you have to deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me? Is that good news? What do you do with that? What, what role, what character role do you do with those words? That would tell you what you would do with Christ. Do you bow to them? Do you deny them? Do you crucify them? This is the good news about or concerning or as proclaimed by Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God. And then Mark writes this. This is our last question. He says, the beginning of this good news. What does he mean by that? The beginning of this good news. There's one kind of if you if you keep keep that verse verse one tightly connected to verse two. One way of understanding this is is that verse two is the beginning. So like, essentially, Mark is saying, "Here's the beginning of the story." Because if you look at verse two, he announces the prophets. He simply says, It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you, a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Maybe you're saying, that's the beginning of the gospel. The, uh, the prophetic announcement of Isaiah, by the way, that's Malachi in Isaiah, the prophetic announcement of the prophets is the beginning of the good news. There's, there's, maybe there's partly that's true. But the problem with that is that the prophets don't begin The good news. The good news precedes the prophets. You can find good news in Genesis. You can find the beginning of the good news in Exodus. I mean, if we're going to race each other to the beginning of the good news, we end up in Genesis 3. If not in Genesis 1, why were we made in the first place? That's beautiful news. In the gospel, the good news is that God made us and that he placed us. You ever thought how thankful you are that you live here and not in Bangladesh? how much good news that is, just be thankful that you're a human and not an ant. The same profound good news is there. So where do we get to the beginning of the good news? So really the prophets aren't the beginning of the good news. I mean, maybe in a sort of way. Certainly that's not wrong. It's just not completely right. So... So maybe you would say this. Maybe it's connected to the ministry of John the Baptist because that's what verse 2 and 3 are referring to. In fact, look at 4. And so John came baptizing in the desert region. Maybe, maybe what Mark is saying is, is the beginning of the good news about and as proclaimed by Jesus Christ begins with Mark, uh, John the Baptist. And I do think there's truth here. I, I mean, I, there's something that's... that's really true about this. In fact, John the Baptist brings a message to the people of repentance. And I would say that repentance is, in many ways, the beginning of good news. If you're not willing to repent, I have no good news to share with you. I have nothing but bad news. And so in some ways, the beginning of good news is this attitude of repentance that was preached by John. But the problem I have with this is Jesus Christ isn't even part of this conversation. That John the Baptist is not the prelude to Jesus, he's kind of the prelude to good news. That Jesus, or John the Baptist is ushering in the expectation of good news. But Jesus Christ shows up and says, I'm going to tell you good news. So I kind of feel that we're stopping short there. This is what I want to offer. Maybe chapter 1, verse 1 is not very tightly connected to verse 2 through 13. Or verse 2, or verse 3, or any of those. Maybe chapter 1, verse 1 is like a subtitle of the whole book. Mark, the beginning of the good news about and proclaimed by Jesus, the anointed one, the Son of God. You see that? A subtitle of the book. Mark. And Mark is the beginning of the good news about and proclaimed by Christ, who is the anointed one, the Son of God. This is why I think that. If the compilation of Mark is the whole good news, why would Matthew write one? And Why would Luke write one? That if, if Mark was the good news, why would, did it seem fit to continue to talk about the story? I think, I think Mark would say, hey, this is the beginning of the story. Let me tell you the beginning of the story. So why the other Gospels? Why does Luke continue his Gospel of Luke? We call it the Gospel of Luke. It actually continues into two parts, which I don't think Luke identified. One is Gospel and one is Acts. Luke identified, I wrote two books about the story of good news one is about the life of Christ and one is about the power of Christ displayed in the body of Christ, which is the church. So if the, body of the Christ, if the body of Christ is alive today in the church, does it not have a voice in the good news? Why does Luke seem to continue it? Why does John end his gospel this way? By the way, he says this, you know what, if I was going to try to tell you everything, I could write books that would fill the earth. That's what John says. He says, "I could never stop writing." That's his way of saying, "I'm just telling you the beginning of the good news." He says it's so broad. It's so wide. There's so much good news about Jesus that if I was going to write it all the time, all down, I'd never stop writing. The letters, the letters of Paul and of others, they clarify the stories of scripture which edify our understanding of the good news. So our, underst- our, our understanding of Trinity, our understanding of all of these big fancy terms, expatiation and, and, and you know, sanctification, all these things, they, are, they, are, they live in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but we depend upon these letters to kind of explain them. So they have some sharing role in the good news. Let me ask you this. Revelation, is it good news or isn't it? I would say absolutely. Paul says if this life is all we're living, we are to be the most pitied of all people. That the close of the good news, if it even closes in Scripture, has to be with Revelation, the end of Revelation, not the beginning. In fact, the end of Revelation begins to talk about new good news. The last vision that John has, uh, the, the, the angel says, hey, come, I want to show you something new. And he sees the construction of a new city, a new life, a new dwelling with God. And that's how the book ends. The book ends on the beginning of good news. I, I'm... I'm calling us to this attention on 1-1 one, one because I want us to posture ourselves. I want us to reframe our understanding of gospel. I want it to come out of its jar. I want to break the jar. And I want you to understand that there, there is no end in sight of the ways you can share good news with people. It's going to need certain essential elements. They have to be there. Or it's not really good news at all. But if those elements, admitting that they're there does not deny the fact that there's so much else there that you could write until the end of the age, you could fill the earth with books and not be done. Sometimes we think, you know, you think in your own Christian life, you think, ah, I am a Christian, whatever that means, when did that term get codified? That seems to be one that was once lowercase, and now we've made uppercase. What does Christian mean? But have you ever noticed if you were saved 15 years ago that you get saved and then you think back and you, and you look back like five years later at your salvation and you think, was I even a believer? And you think, look how much more I know Christ. And then give yourself another 10 years. And you look back and you chuckle at your former state of Christendom. And then you go 10 more years. You could be in the faith for 150 years You could have dived into the faith 150 years and you've barely broken the surface tension of God. It is so deep. And so when we share, as we share and as we speak about God, we need to make very sure that when we talk to people, we're not giving them the whole good news. We're giving them the beginning of the good news, which has to do with what Christ has done and it has to do with what Christ has said because he is the anointed son of God.